0: This is who killed Teresa, and I'm your host, John Allor. Today we should go back to Ground zero and uh, read out the uh, traditional scroll for anybody um, joining uh, anyone who's late to the party. Teresa Allure was a 19year- old Canadian college student who disappeared on Friday, November 3rd, 1978, from Champlain College, Lennoxville, in the eastern townships of Quebec. Five months later, on April 13, 1979, her body was discovered in a small body of water approximately one kilometer from her dormitory residence in Compton. Upon her disappearance, police initially suggested she was a runaway. When her body was discovered, police then suggested that she was the possible victim of a drug overdose, perhaps with assistance of fellow college students. In the summer of 2002, the family of Teresa Lohr enlisted the support of an investigative reporter and friend, Patricia Pearson, who produced a series of articles in Canada's National Post newspaper that presented compelling evidence that Theresa Lohr was the victim of murder, and that her death was possibly linked to two other unsolved local cases, the death of 10-year-old Manon Dupay in March 78, and the murder of Louise Cameron in 1977. Since 2002, John Allure, who maintains the website Who Killed Teresa, has continued the investigation. Allure has geographically identified an additional 15 unsolved murders from 1975 to 1981, which may be associated... The related cases are Sharon Pryor, Lee Choquette, Louise Cameron, Jocelyn Hull, Chantal Tremblay, Joanne Dorient, Helen Monast, Catherine Hawks, Denise Bazinet, Manon Dubé, Lise Emblay, Theresa Allure, Nicole Goudreau, Tammy Leakey, and Joanne Lemieux. Beginning in 2018, Allure has begun to focus on Quebec cases from the 1980s, 1990s, and early 70s. Cases that further suggest systemic failures in Quebec criminal justice. Uh, well, we're going to talk about a lot of things today. Um, there's some catch-up things, and uh, I should um, I should explain why I haven't podcast in um, the last three weeks because I've been thinking. <laughs> uh, I I get that way and I get paralyzed with some things. And the the, the reason is and I I can't remember if I I think I might have done this on social media, but I don't think I did officially did it in the podcast. So I'll if if I did well I'm repeating myself, but just officially yeah, um w- w- we signed a deal with Penguin Random House books. Uh so that project is as of april ago and um and so yeah i'm writing a book with patricia pearson and that's why i did the intro if you don't know patricia uh, i've known her all my life um as a professional she uh she wrote the book on uh women killers when she was bad uh, also as a crime journalist she covered the uh, Carla Hamolka and Paul Bernardo cases for the Globe and Mail. Quite uh, a traumatizing experience, the way she describes it. And um, so, yeah, it, it, it took um, I, five months of negotiations. My God, uh, uh, I kind of pissed everybody off when I got a New York literary agent. Um, but that, it all worked out in the end. Um, I mean, ultimately, what we were going for was... Kind of a trade-off and an opportunity to complement each other. Uh, Patricia is an established writer. I am not as an established writer. What she brings to the table is that she can, she can deliver on about um, twelve European Union and Brexit countries uh, as well as English-speaking Canada. What I bring to the table is, uh, well, the intellectual property of the story. And, uh, because I've, I'm a Canadian living in the United States, uh, I can bring the U.S. market, which she, uh, up until now has been unable to penetrate along with the French, uh, language, um, populace of Quebec. So, th- so that's it. It's a, it's like a two-year project that we'll be working on. Um, the, the stipulation was that it, when it's released it's it, it the juggernaut effect that it gets published simultaneously in english and french in quebec and the rest of canada and it gets published in the united states that was that was the deal um but this um created several obstacles uh immediately it was like uh i had some conversations with the publishers where they were like you know you need to um you know you don't want to be competing with yourself with a podcast or a website you need to tone it down a bit and i was like well how do i do that um you know, while still maintaining a, prever- a, a, a presence. And, and that's a, a lot of the reason for why since January I've I've shut up about the cases from 75 to 81 and kind of gone far afield into the 80s and 90s or the early 70s. But quite frankly, every time I've done that, um, I might managed to find information that informs the original core cases and kind of jeopardizes the the product of, or the message of any potential published work. Um, and if you've been listening, you can you can sort of see where that happened, the, the, the themes, et cetera, with that. So what? So what to do? And um, you know, by way of an example that I can give you, uh, so in the series we did um, on. The, uh, Diane Thibault, uh, Debbie Buck, and Carol Dupont. I, I wanted to do a second. Uh, I wanted to do a second podcast, an update on Carol Dupont, because um, I think I told you I made a request for, uh, of uh, Banque, the Quebec Library, for documents on on, on Diane Thibault, and got seventy documents. In the case of Carol Dupont, I made a request. And they got back to me and they said, "Um, we just got to tell you, uh, uh, there's 225 documents here. It's going to cost you 80 bucks. And I'm like, "Mm, do I roll the dice? Uh, And they also said, oh, and Mr. Allure, there's photographs in here. And it's like, that's that's too rich a treasure to ignore. So um, I paid for it. Uh, 225 documents, uh, the majority of them, Sarté de Québec police reports. And <clears throat> uh, as I say, uh, you know, in, in attempting to, to get out of my way, to get out of the way of 1975-81 and, and look at a case from 73, I ended up stepping right into 1975 to 81 the, the core cases what am I going to do about this and um, you know without saying too much like I went to Patricia Pearson and I told her what I had and she said oh you can't say that that has to be saved for the book um, and then I, I went to Craig Pyatt who's the true crime editor at Penguin Random House Canada I told him the same thing he was like oh you can't reveal that <laughs> I, I I'm I'm being preciously coy here and I'm and I'm sorry but it's just there's inf- there's information in there uh, um not of a you know it's not going to solve a crime but of an associative uh nature that explains um that is sort of kind of an an origin story for a lot of the behavior that went on with uh, Alor Dubé, Cameron cases. That's as simple as I um, as I can put it. So it was like, so then, you know, you're paralyzed. It's like, well, no matter where, how far afield I think I'm going, I'm going to, you know, if I'm not careful, I'm going to be unconsciously, um, you know, Tipping my hand, showing my hand to a book product, and, and which will dilute, you know, the outcome. So what? What do you? So I did do some exploring about the possibility of, you know, going very far afield. I, I thought about doing uh, like cases in in Northern Quebec, uh, cases surrounding the Rez and and Valdor, the experiences of, uh, um um of indigenous populations uh which it gets some exposure doesn't get the exposure it deserves um uh so that was a, that's a that's still a possibility actually and then i thought well um what about somebody suggested to me ontario cases uh so i did a little exploring around that um and you know when when you look at uh, you know the uh, an Ontario cold case police website compared to a Quebec cold case case website is a completely different experience. I mean, if you uh you know, the Montreal police's cold case website is very haphazard. They, they've been saying for 2 years now they need to get it up to speed. Uh sort of take Quebec uh cold case website, although commendable is uh you know, it there's, they don't give away a lot. There's not a lot of information there. Uh, the OPP, on the other hand, in Ontario, um, they offer rewards. There's, there's more substantive uh, information, and so I was like, well, this, this could be a thing. The trouble is, there isn't a resource. Um, Well, number one, I had the opportunity to, you know, look at the Allô Police um, archive. But number two, there isn't a resource uh, in Ontario or anywhere in the world, I think, quite like the Bibliothèque Nationale du Québec, Banque, um, where, where they're mandated to store this information. They explained it to me. Uh, after 30 years, it, it is required that certain government agencies hand this information over to them so that they can log it and, you know, catalog it and file it and keep it on record for purposes of transparency for the public to have access to. Now, when I went to, to you know, and, and beyond that, they have a, like a rich trove of uh, French and English language newspapers. You can, you know, that's that's been the source of my information since January. Actually, it's, it, it's less been um, requesting documents. It's more been just reading La Presse and Le Devoir newspapers. Uh, th- there is no such thing in in Ontario. In fact, when I tried to find a database. Um, I couldn't find anything. When I reached out to some colleagues, I said, is there anything like this? And they said, no, no. no." In fact, I was informed it was actually a class action lawsuit a number of years ago in Ontario because they were uh, allowing access to historical newspapers. And a bunch of journalists got very upset with that. and, And that was the basis of the class action lawsuit. And it was shut down. So there's really uh, there's not quite a resource available uh, like like Banqueu, which um, you know kind of leaves me you know stuck in Quebec where 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 I belong. I mean, I really shouldn't be going anywhere else and looking anything. And and there's come on, there's six hundred cold cases in the Certe de Quebec's jurisdiction alone. I mean, I mean the, the breadth of cold cases that we know of is more like 1,600 when you combine all the, all the agencies. There's a lot of work for a lot of people to do. Uh, we, we, we ain't done yet. Getting it back to the the book project, uh, I, I've it's no secret I've discussed it many times before. Uh, that uh, Patricia Pearson and I have a long a long history. Um, uh, we when we were kids, three or four, we had cottages on the same uh, lake mm-hmm. in the Korth, uh region of Ontario. Although we didn't know each other, then we went to the same boarding school in Saint John, New Brunswick um uh we were like for for a number of years boyfriend and girlfriend um there's a royal wedding yes in uh in london today uh harry and and the girl i I don't i don't follow these things i don't know um but i i I remember when uh, charles and diana were married i can tell you exactly where i was in 1981, I was in the Chateau Laurier Hotel in Ottawa, Ontario, with Patricia. Um, and then further, I just remembered this. Uh, for a number of years, I lived in New York City, and when I when I moved from New York City to Houston, Texas, I moved out of. I had this really sweet apartment that I shared with some friends at. 57 Grand Street in in Soho, just above uh, Lucky Strike, which I think Lucky Strike is still there down the street from the Moondance Diner. And when I moved out, Patricia, who was at Columbia studying journalism, she moved in. She took over um, my share of the lease. Um, So and and then, of course, you know, writing the National Post stories, et cetera, et cetera. So a long, a long uh, association, a, a lot of trust there. And, and and we work really well together. Um, a, a, a lot of the foundation is is her um, uh, listening to some of these podcasts, um, or, or directly interviewing me, or I will just email her stuff uh, sections that I think are important. But she has the ability because she's a writer, and I'm 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 not a professional writer. I didn't go to Columbia she's able to give it context that I'm I'm not able to give. So um you know, a good a good merging of of talents, I think, and I think it'll be it'll be quite successful. But then, you know, back to this idea of uh you know, what to write about and what not and the uh, potential of of stepping in it. I, I um I was uh you know, I was seriously thinking of just not just stopping podcasting at all. And uh, and Patricia said, oh, you shouldn't do that. And so she had me call Craig Payette with Penguin Random House um, and uh, talk to him. And and so I did. And he said, uh, yeah, yeah. He said, you know, you got to keep the podcast going. And I said, but come on, Craig. I mean, seriously. I, 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 you know, on any given Sunday, I, I might have a thousand listeners a day. I mean, I probably have... 5,000 to 10,000 listeners on the planet combined. That is not a market. Uh, and he said, no, 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 but it's a presence. And he said, and it's going to grow. He said, as, as this project gets, you know, closer and closer. So he said, you need to keep that presence. Um, and he gave me some, some rules, some tenets, basically. He said, you know, don't do not do anything that would jeopardize the third act of the book you know don't reveal anything that specifically has to do with new evidence about the the murders or new evidence about the police investigations but he said but other than that you can you know thematically you're a victim's advocate and i he said he was like i don't want you to to stop doing that so um so I won't stop doing that, but I, I think I will try to stay out of you know stay in my lane uh outside of 75 to 81 and not not go into that lane as as much as is is humanly possible. I have had a couple of requests to do podcasts uh for specific cold cases, so one a case in Cowansville, Quebec, the other in uh uh Quebec. Um, And I'll probably, I'll probably do those. Uh, The the bad news, if, you know, if if you've been following around, well, you'll be privileged. Uh, If you've been, if you dedicated yourself to listening to every, all 64 episodes or something, good on you. Um, But if you've just kind of dipped your toes into the whole affair, I can tell you this. Uh, There's four episodes that are coming down. <laughs> Sorry. And and I I I'll, I'll I'll give away um, uh, you know again it's 5 to 10,000 people so who gives a crap. Um, episodes 19, 21, 33 and 34 of season 1 uh, will shortly no longer be available. So you got a limited time to go in and, and binge listen to those if you and when you listen to them, um, you'll have some knowledge of the basis of part of the book. Um, but I'll, I'll say this about that. If you think you know everything about that suspect, you don't, because as early as November, I stopped um, saying things that I knew about him I'll give you a, a couple of updates on some matters uh, if you've been listening uh the dion thibault podcast um from the series uh, that little series uh, intro to loco i really like that series actually i thought um that came off exactly how i wanted it to particularly the thibault episode thibault was the one where the guy confessed to killing her but it was uh, the confession was ultimately tossed out by the courts um the quebec newspaper la presse took a a, a real interest in that podcast and they're going to write a a story on it and on on thibault on this podcast a little bit about me so that's kind of exciting and um uh, I'm, I'm always happy for attention in the French language uh, in Quebec, that, that sort of attention, that kind of specific attention in French in Quebec is always of interest to me, that kind of publicity. So that's good. Other thing is, uh, um, okay. I'm stepping in the lane of 75 to 81, but th- this is harmless because it's public knowledge. We talked briefly because there's very little information about it, about a case, um, the case of, uh, excuse me, uh, um, the case of uh, Lise Choquette. This is a 1975 murder, if you recall. She lived in downtown Montreal. She disappears. Her body is found uh, north uh, uh, in Laval, on the island of Laval, near a construction site to an auto route. And she's found and strangled with a a necktie um and apparently so there's an ontario case um that many listeners may be more familiar with it's the lady of the river nation case uh, sometimes a victim in castleman ontario where they have the body they've reconstructed the face so the the castleman castleman uh Incident happened on May third, nineteen seventy five, and, and it was the victim was f- discovered floating under an overpass of Highway four seventeen, and of course she's never been identified. Well, now police have some reason to believe that the case of uh, the, the Castleman woman and Choquette are connected, and uh, this came out about a year ago, but in some pretty obscure press. I think it was in the uh, I think it was in the Journal de Marielle and a very like a local castleman newspaper uh and the similarities they find is that there's a two-day window between the between the two cases um and both were strangled with neckties um uh, and i i guess as well the similarities of near an overpass highway 417 and uh choquette uh in a in a new development along the new highway of four hundred and forty, um, bit of an obstacle in that the the the, the dump sites are one hundred and fifty kilometers away. Apparently, the police have no problems with that. Um, a head scratcher. Uh, I'm having difficulty convincing anyone of a connection between Sherbrooke cases and Montreal cases. That they are certainly. There are certainly more similarities between those clusters of cases and, uh, a shorter distance, um, not a 10 day in some of the cases, a 10 day window, but, um, I think the most fertile period was, uh, 77 between, um, between March and October 77, almost 10 cases in similar nature, um, Police not willing to swallow that, but willing to swallow this. Although I would imagine, uh, Choquette is a Laval police case, uh, given where the body was found. I think this theory is primarily being pushed pushed by the OPP, by the Ontario police, who are a little, as I've already mentioned, a little more forthcoming and transparent in communications with the public than um the fortress we know of as the quebec police speaking of the quebec police um <clears throat> I-, I talked to them this week i talked to the sartre de quebec to sylvain again and with uh, my handler sylvain um i think the last time we talked about this i was quite optimistic well with sylvain it's always one step forward and two steps back um uh, it, very frustrating um before that um the, the the nature of the, the conversation was the Carol Dupont case, the case where I found 225 documents. Um, a little about that, um, uh, th- that is harmless that I can tell you. So just recall that uh, Carol was a like a go-go dancer in St. Therese. St. Therese is a little village, right? Um, very, very small. And uh, the night of December 22nd, 1973, She's in the village, kind of bar hopping. There's about three or four bars you can go to there. Uh, she's seen by many people, and she disappears. Um, uh, she ultimately, on Friday the 13th, or I don't know, sorry, it's not Friday. That's, that's my date. Uh, April 13th, 74, her body is found um, in the snow behind a retirement home uh, within the village. So in, in, in going over that file, the, as I say, the majority of information in there were Sarté du Québec police files. And it's a fascinating study on how they do their work. And, and a lot of it was interviews. Um, and, you know, what I can tell you is that crime, the murder of Carol uh, Dupont, which is a cold case on the Sarté Québec's website, which was the nature of my phone call with Sylvain, is totally solvable. What happened there happened—all the events of those people's lives happened within about a three-mile radius. The bars they went to, where they worked, where they lived, everyone knew each other. And some people in that community at that time knew exactly what happened to Carol Dupont and are not talking. I think I know who murdered her. And that's why I found uh, Sylvain. And and you know he's he's of course he's he's very coy. He's like Mister Alor. We're not going to discuss another case. So I'll discuss your sister's case. But I'm never going to give you any information on another case, which of course is a lie because because his behavior is enough to tell you three or four things, right? So I tell him I, I tell him you know what I. What I got, not all that I got, but I told him what I got, and there's like a lot long silence. Right? It's like, well, where did you get that? <laughs> I said, "Well, what do you mean, where did I got?" I just said, "It's public information, man. You can get it at the library." Well, you don't have everything. I said, "How do you know I don't have everything? You don't know what I have." And uh, so I I pitched to him what I think happened. Long silence. Oh, we're not going to tell you anything, uh, Mr. Allor, you know. Um, And and then he's like, Why do you want to do this? He said, Why? (laughs) He's like, mystified. And I said, Listen, I think after 45 years, you guys have had your shot. Now, I commend you last month for finally putting Carol's picture up on your website. Um, And I don't want to jeopardize your investigation. That's why I'm not revealing specifics about it. But after 45 years, you owe the public a debt of transparency and accountability that you're not disclosing. And God damn it, if you won't disclose it, I will. Which of course he didn't understand what I was saying, so it was just kind of talking to myself. But uh you know, I said to him, I said, uh I said, Are you re I said, are you are you re-interviewing witnesses? He goes, Yes. So already he's he's like telling me things. I said, Do you know where they are? Because I know where they are. And he's like he just stops cold and he said, Mr. Alar again, I'm not going to tell you anything about another case. I mean, it went nowhere. But this is, you know, this is the asinine relationship with with the Quebec police. It's all one sided. He's like, yeah, do what, do whatever you want, but just don't uh, don't don't reveal autopsy details, okay? Do what you have to do, something something like that. So what I am going to do, and this brings us to the the event of this episode in discussing the 1975 case of the murders of Dion Deary and Mario Corbet. I think this provides a pretty good example of what I believe I can do in this period where I got to be careful about um, discussing what, what I discuss in a cold case now to frame it I just just to pause I wanted to say a few things because i I I gassed on about them on social media and I, I so I should I, I should I should explain um after the events in Toronto with the van attack, I wanted to do an episode on the uh Montreal massacre at Ecole Polytechnique in the late 1980s. Um, but then in thinking about it, I said, you know, in in order to give that horrible event of the murder of 14 uh, young women proper context, I really also needed to go back and explain what I kind of think is ground zero uh, in Quebec, and that's the... Um, The October crisis, the FLQ crisis of the 1970s, that's the kidnapping of James Cross and Pierre Laporte and and ultimately the murder of, uh, I believe he was, Labour Minister Pierre Laporte. Um, And for any Canadian, particularly someone living in Quebec, particularly somebody growing up in Montreal, um, that is a foundational moment, uh, then prime minister Pierre Trudeau called in, um, uh, called in the army, um, quite akin to, uh, you know, Robert Kennedy in 68, uh, you know, federalizing the troops, uh, against George Wallace, uh, except that I never grew up with any knowledge of, of Robert Kennedy and George Wallace or anything to do with the you know integrating of the school system and in the the deep South, Uh, none of it that that came later. I grew up with the October Crisis, um, but in 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 investigating that, I was like, "Mm." and and how that event affected me, I was like, I I I don't know if I can really discuss that. Um, I think that better save that for the book so that's why I didn't podcast them but I, I am I am going to talk about the case of Dionne, uh, Deary and Corbey oh, uh, Corbet to, to make a point that I think needs to be made Tomorrow, uh, May May twentieth, two thousand eighteen, will be the forty-third anniversary of the murders of Mario Corbe and uh, Dion Deary. This this is a case that that, that some people in Quebec know. Um, I know the the. Sharon Pryor's family, Maureen Doreen and Yvonne Pryor, are, are distinctly aware of this case because the the murders of these children occurred one month after the murder of Sharon in the same area. Uh, these murders occurred in Langue, and Sharon was found in Langue. So I know they're aware of it, and I know certain Quebec crime uh, aficionados um, are aware of it. But there's scant little information on the cases. Uh, there are some facts known, but a lot of the a lot of story has been lost. And I'll, I'll read you an example of of what um, basically is known. On May twentieth, nineteen seventy five, at around eight fifteen p.m., Diandiri Diri, age thirteen and Mario Corbet, age 15, left Diane's home to go for a motorcycle ride in a field near Boulevard Roland Terrien and Languet. Seeing that the young people had not returned, family members of the two teenagers searched the area during the evening and night. The next morning at around 7.20 a.m., the police found the bodies of Diane Diri and Mario Corbet in a wooded area at the end of Boulevard Roland Terrien and Avenue Vogelin. The crime scene analysis showed that the two young people were murdered. Um, so, by way of an example, uh, I I have like a, a small file on this case. Um, when I was at a uh, when I, at the archives of Alo police, I took um, I took a number of photographs of articles from Alo police on this case. I've just simply chosen never to look into it for a number for a number of reasons. Number one, I don't think this case is connected to my sister's case, nor to possibly possibly the other cases um, from seventy five to eighty eighty one. Um, that's the first thing. The, the other thing is is I have I have a ton of information I've not gone gone over before, and you have to you know you have to be selective and prioritize what you're going to report and what you're going to talk about um but the third thing that is well the third obstacle originally was my french wasn't that good um and all these articles are in french and um it could it, it could be a challenge and it could take me time to read over um, an article like this um that uh, that's no longer the case um i'm able to to pretty much digest an article uh as if I'm reading a, an English language newspapers. I, I might struggle on a few words or idioms or phrasings, but uh, for the most part, I can I can digest it really, really quickly. So by way of an example of kind of going, okay, let's take a case that I don't think is involved, um, so it won't jeopardize like a book project. Let's go through it and, and see all the ways... Um, and associations that, although not direct, could potentially, you know, um, uh, become become fodder or become uh, absorbed into a book project, uh, depending on which way that project goes. So pretty much by random, I, I said, you know, I, I don't know this case. I you know there were two kids on motorcycles and they got murdered. And, and I think I knew that they had been shot. I knew that. But that's all I knew. And, and, you know, back then I was thinking, well, I'm talking strangulation. This is shot. Those are different. We now know maybe, uh, maybe not. Um, so I read those articles. And what I did, um, I, I, I sometimes do this. I just tra- I, I took an article from a low police uh, from August 5th, 1979. So this is five years after the murders, uh, written by Jacques Durand. And I translated it, and I'll put the whole article on uh, my website, TeresaLore.com. But this is a good example of how this, this stuff works. Uh, today, now, if you go and search on on Deary, as I said, uh, you'll find little information on this case. Um, you'll find the blurb I just read on a Quebec police agency's page, and you'll find... Um, You'll you'll find like in a Canada Cold Cases website a little blurb as well, but that's that's really much it. But in reading over this story, um, as I say, the 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 associations, the fa- familiarity familiarity that this family went through is so potent uh, that it it, it kind of took my breath away. So I'm going to I'm going to read this article now. After four years and no resolution, the father of Diandiri, Jacques Diry, demanded of the then Quebec justice minister Marc Andre Bedard that the case be taken away from the investigating force, the Lange Police, and transferred to the Sarté du Québec. In 1975. The Drearies lived at 1145 Rue Bizard in Languet. They since moved to Saint-Célestin, Nicolette. He worked at a gas station. His wife ran the small canteen inside. The parents of Mario Corbet, Mr. and Mrs. Maurice and Françoise Corbet, continued to live in Languet on Rue Boucher. The Dury's attorney in this affair was Guy Hul. And now there's a recounting of events that happened on May 20th and 21st, 1975. It was a Tuesday, a beautiful day. Mario's parents gave him a small motociclette as a present. Mario spent many hours enjoying it, giving rides to his family and friends. The last ride was reserved for a petite amie, Diane Derry. The families would never see them alive again. The next day, Wednesday, May 21st, the bodies were discovered in a fear field near the Saint-Hubert airport. Mario had been beaten, then shot six times with a twenty-two caliber caliber pistol. Diane had been shot once in the head with the same caliber pistol. She had been sexually assaulted and her body was placed on top of Mario's. The bodies were placed in such a manner as to suggest they had a sexual relationship. The case was turned over to two lieutenant detectives Lancôme and Villeneuve of the Longueuil police. A dozen persons were interrogated. After two years, Monsieur Jacques Dirier, Dirie made the decision to sell everything and settle elsewhere. The family had a new daughter, Manon, and they wanted to start a better life. He moved to a corner of the province, Saint-Célestine. Monsieur Dirie became the proprietor of a gas station along Route 20. He established a solid clientele. He had another project in mind, getting his entire family out of Longay as soon as possible. Monsieur Diry bought a house, and then in the month of October, his family moved to this small, strong, and sympathetic village. The work was hard. It required him to work seven days a week. Not satisfied with her husband working alone, Madame Dury decided to operate the small canteen inside the gas station. Despite the arrangement, there was always two questions that needed answering. Who and why? Monsieur Dury continued to communicate with investigators back in Langay. Investigators continued to communicate the same message. We suspect someone, but we do not have the proof. Wanting to know more, Monsieur and Madame Deary met with Lieutenant Detective Maurice Lozon, who was the head of Langey Homicide. He advised the Dearys that he was not familiar with their dossier, but he would get up to speed quickly. He promised to telephone the family regularly to give them updates on the investigations. He never responded at all, I left messages, but he never called back. It was always me that had to telephone, said Monsieur Dury, and added If the Lange police can't do anything to advance the case, why can't they turn it over to the Sarté de Quebec? It's not possible that two young children are killed so close to their homes and they can't find anything. It's not possible. Maybe the Serté de Quebec won't be able to find anything either, but we'd have at least the satisfaction to know that we tried. During the interview, which took place inside the gas station, as Mr. Dury sold cigarettes to customers coming and going, his son pumped gas and Manon rested on the counter. When things settled down, the boy came inside and the children stayed close to their parents. Madame Deary, who was sitting in the window, said, After four years, I've come to accept it. I know now that she's never coming back. I accept that. But why would someone do that? Through their attorney, Guy Hull, the Dearys made a request to Quebec Justice Minister Marc-André Bedard to officially have the case transferred from the city of Longueuil to the Provincial Police de Sarté de Quebec. Here is the text from Monsieur Deary's request sent through Deary's attorney, Guy Hull. Honourable Minister of Justice, Considering the events of May 20th, 1975, my child, Diane Deary, age 13, a victim of an assassin, close to our home at 1145 Rue Bizard in Longuet. Considering that certain actions and enterprises by the municipal police of Longuet were attempted to elucidate this investigation, but no concrete results were given in the total study of the case. Considering that now, for more than four years, we had hoped to see results in these affairs. Considering that the municipal police of Longueuil, despite all efforts at their disposal, possibly do not possess the necessary tools to conduct an investigation and achieve results. Considering above all that the municipal police of Longueuil do not specialize in these types of investigations, considering that the Sûreté de Quebec has at their disposal a professional homicide squad. It's why the people need to be confident in institutions and certainly in the protection of society against assassins who may walk free among us. We submit this request to the Honorable Minister of Justice of the province that you will take a hand in this affair jointly with the Municipal Police of Longay to shed a light in the name of justice and public security. This letter was sent to the Justice Minister on July 5th, 1979. It was also sent to the Longuei Police, the deputy of Nicolette Yamaska, Monsieur Serge Fontaine, and our collaborator at Allo Police, Claude Poirier. Just as we were leaving St. Celestine, the Deary's young daughter, who up until then had said nothing, offered, Today people will kill for $2. We want justice. And all of them know why they did it. The Deary family has suffered. Will they be happy one day when they know the names of the assassins? We hope so. The Maurice Corbet family also left their home on a Rue Boucher in Longueuil. Madame Corbet moved to Saint-Félix-de-Kingsy, and she would like to continue to go to Bons. Madame Corbet has come to an accord with the investigation. Of the police, she says, We were suspected for being suspicious. I want the investigation, because in things like this, we must find the culprits. Nevertheless, she tries not to think of the horrible things. I don't want any publicity for my son, and I don't want to look at it. Why would you want publicity for such a thing? That is the article from Hello Police in 1979 from the points of view of the Deary and Corbet families. Um, and a postscript, a couple actually. Uh, that November, November 1979, the Justice Minister of Quebec capitulated to their demands and he agreed to the family's request and they transferred the cases to the Certe de Quebec. The Dion Deary and Mario Corbet cases are currently listed on the Certe de Quebec's cold case website, and the murders are still unsolved, uh, which will be 43 years exactly tomorrow. One other interesting thing I found in the, while combing the newspapers uh, in the obituary for Diane Deary, uh, her death was listed as uh, uh, died accidentally. And I can only think that uh, most likely this um, this was probably to save face so the family could avoid shame uh, in the Longay community, the shame of uh, such a horrible death. What resonates so clearly for me uh in this account is um the experiences of the uh Deary and Corbet families the two distinct experiences um all of this occurring you know when Teresa when my sister was still alive in the you, you know the, their event began in 75 uh We were fucking around Montreal in 75. We didn't have a clue to any of this, nor should we have had a clue to any of this. Um, But the words of Jacques uh, Deary, the words in saying that the police would never initiate a call, that it was always he who had to do it, that is the same experience all of us have had. Uh now it's a little better now in that they do return calls but I can tell you for a long period that they did not they're they're more they're, they're they're more thorough about that now I I in my experience that may not be everybody's experience but in my experience they do return calls um making a demand to the Quebec justice minister well we, a bunch of us, did this two years ago in uh, demanding a public inquiry into, into unsolved cases. Uh, in 72, 73, a public inquiry was held into the uh, conduct of, of Quebec police in the affair of uh, Ursula Schultz. We have the Amatics affair. Uh, and the public inquiry in the 80s into the CERTE de Quebec. Um and the specific demand to uh to transfer the case from Longue to the CERTE de Quebec. I mean you, from my perspective I'd say well you're you know you're you're handing the lamb over to the lions. But I have not had an experience with Longue or Laval or the municipal force in Quebec City, or the Montreal uh, police, which my understanding is that experience is far worse uh, than the handling uh, with the Certe de Quebec. I've heard many accounts, uh, contemporary accounts, of not returning calls, of not disclosing information, of, uh, of treating victim families or survivors, or whatever you want to call us, with complete contempt. I I know the Sharon Sharon Pryor's family many times had asked for that their file to be turned over to the Sûreté de Québec. Um, I know we had Stephane Luce on this program, and he is to this day because his mother's murder from '81 is an unsolved lange case insisting that the case be turned over to the Serté de Quebec. and in, in, in fact, there's a wave of people that say, you know, there should be a statute of limitations on local forces after a certain period of time. I don't know, a year or two years, it automatically gets um, turned over to the Cerf de Quebec. I don't believe that's the solution. I think that's going to lead to more problems. Um, if 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 local forces know that there's a time limit, on which, you know, the clock will stop ticking, and they they all, all uh, suddenly become uh, they're no longer responsible for something. Um, my feeling is, in the initial two years, which are so or whatever period, the initial years, which are so important, they'll they'll just wait the clock out they'll do nothing and, and just throw it over the, over the wall to the Sûreté de Québec. That's, that's my fear with that suggested solu- solution. And anyway, time tells us that uh, in this case, I mean, this proves to people like uh, uh, the Pryor family and, the, and, the, and Stéphane Luce that it can be done. There is precedent here for um, a local case being turned over to the provincial police. So uh, no one can tell anyone that it can't be done because it has been done. But uh, time has shown us that uh, that ultimately proved, um, you know, that an intervention didn't solve anything. It's still a 43-year-old cold case. The Certificate Quebec has done no better job uh, in investigating it. In in fact, it it remained forgotten for, um, you know, the last... What is it? Thirty-five years, mostly. You don't, you don't find any anybody writing about uh, Diandiri and Mario uh, Corbe, um, and it's only recently that the Sartre de Quebec acknowledged that this case was within their portfolio. Interesting, the the different experiences between the two families that um, the. the Dearies are quite out there and advocating, and the Corbets choose not to be as involved it's It's one of the reasons on social media I've played down Mario Corbet. It's not that I don't care about Mario corbet it, it's from those words of his mother she 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 quite clearly doesn't want to bring shame to the family. It's one of the reasons my my own mother Never really wanted me to um, get involved in in these matters. Uh, she didn't. It was, I was free to do it, but she never. You know, she's of a different generation, and she just thought, no matter what you do, uh, ultimately the public and the press is is going to pillory you. Um, they'll find some reason to to damage the family and suggest that it's it's their fault. Um, <clears throat> if you look on a map uh, how this transpired, um, so, uh, so Mario's bombing around on like a, a, it's a moped, right? We called him a moped then. And this was, it was just done a lot. I remember there's a kid on our block in like right around 75 who had a moped and he would all, he would give us all rides around the neighborhood. So this is a, a very, a very common thing. Interesting. Recall that the Chateague killer also had a moped, you know, around the same era. So you know, this was prevalent, you know. It was, the, it was the new toy around. And the distance between where they were last seen and where they were found, it's a straight shot down that road um, right to the frontier of the Saint-Hubert airport. And the, the field is still there. Uh, it's the same field. Um, interesting to note that that Saint-Hubert uh, airport is the same airport with the body of Pierre Laporte, was found in uh, in 1970 in the trunk of the Paul Rose's car. Uh interesting to note the reference to Claude Poirier in this article. Um, uh, the letter the, to the justice minister Poirier our associate was copied on that letter. Quite Poirier if you've listened is uh, the longevity of that man is incredible. I mean we know he's a journalist with LO police he started off there um has had several uh television shows including Poirier enquête uh, in which Teresa Laure's case was featured Poirier seems to be all places in matters of unsolved murders in Quebec it's a curious thing it's it's and and uh, you know through the years people have gone to Claude uh for assistance whether it's myself or Cédrica Provencher's family or you know in 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 this case quite clearly um the Dearys saw Claude as an advocate as you know as early as, as 75 so that's been his position in Quebec for a very long time going on four decades now I'll close with with this um it, it, you know by podcasting and reporting and posting about this case it's um it's not doing any harm it's it's not going to jeopardize the certificate cold case investigation whatever they're doing who the hell knows we don't we don't know um but it is a. is it it is i think it's important to you know it, it's it's all public information it's all it's all there it's just been forgotten um I don't think uh, the the dearies didn't have a personality, you know? And then when you read this article, I mean, I don't get me, if they did it in the seventies, but I'm saying over time, you just, it's just another victim's family. But when you read this, I mean, I, you, I immediately am polarized into sympathy and empathy for this family. Um, completely um and it uh it, it reinforces the, the themes that we've been talking about of uh of um frustrations with the justice system it's just another example of it um so i think it's important to document and as i say it's not going to do any harm uh there's, there's no there's no investigative facts here that i've revealed that would that would harm anything it's not gonna harm my book project it it's so far afield um so I think this is the kind of stuff that isn't important to to document um, and you know come tomorrow um this this post not the podcast but the 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 the, the website post will kind of become the basis for the Deary and Corbet cases and I'll be able to I mean I just I you google it it will be the first thing that comes up guarantee me I guarantee you because I've seen it happen so many times that's not me bragging on myself it's more to acknowledge that it's it's important to have someone uh, documenting you know documenting these kind of things so that the information can be out there so that Somebody who lives in Quebec says, "Wasn't there a case? They didn't. There weren't two children murdered in Longue? And so, whatever happened to that? So you have some idea um, that uh, these matters aren't forgotten, and they're far from resolved. And we hold the police and Quebec justice accountable." to see that they are resolved. Still, still hold them accountable. Those, those words of the family, despite their differences, both families clearly wanted to see resolution to these things because as Corbet, Madame Corbet, says the culprits must be found. Dearies the say the people who did this know who they are. Uh, that is profoundly important and uh must bear witness so that that's heavy uh i'll i'll, I'll add one thing to, uh, slightly um of a lighter tone uh buoyant th- th- tone just just to you know make this <laughs> not such a downer it's 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 quite evident that i really i i, I like music um and particularly music. I like to find the music that suits a podcast in uh, an era. Um, there's there's a lot of music I've, that is cherished and I've never used. I kind of find, try to find the right thing. But for this episode, and we'll close out with this, I was thinking about a, a band from the late 70s, The Tourists, which was uh, Annie Lennox and, and Dave Stewart's band who most people know from the the Eurythmics, of course, and Annie Lennox now, of course, everyone knows. I was thinking about this this album I had the, by the, the the tourists, and so I listened to it again. It's an album from 79, and I was just thinking of all the songs I heard in there. I certainly hear I hear the Who. I hear the Birds. Um, I hear... Uh, the eels in in the tourists all of the you know the harmonies and the things like that uh dave dave stewart's use of synthesizers and guitars and and so in crafting an episode i always i always kind of try to give it a, you know if I'm talking about a time period I'll try to frame it in that time period so with this one you know, we kind <clears> of <throat> foundationally start with the birds from the 60s and then kind of move into the the early 70s uh with the who um closing with um, the tourists 1979 uh, song it doesn't have to be this way which I really love but that's kind of and, and sometimes I'll reverse the songs i'll do it in reverse order and that's that's a way of commenting how um through the eras there's a there's a timeline trajectory which is chronological but there's also a way that it periods are going back in time and self-referencing each other if that makes sense it, that it, time is not moving uh, a b c d e f g and i, I sometimes think time moves spirally Fortune is a wheel, Fluellen says. It rolls and rolls. So it's, you're spiraling, and sometimes and so you're revisiting places, and sometimes you're fortunate that you're spiraling up, and sometimes you're very unfortunate, and you're spiraling down and revisiting unpleasant places. That's why I do that. Anyway, this has been uh, Who Killed Teresa? If you like the podcast, um, give us a thumbs up or whatever you do, a nice review on uh, wherever you listen to it. Uh, I guess the predominant force is iTunes, five stars, blah, blah, blah. Um, you can follow us on social media. Um, I'm personally at JusticeGuy, J U S T U S G U Y. And there's a specific handle for the podcast, which is at Teresa Lore, at T-H-E-R-E-S-A-A-L-L-O-R-E. We are on Facebook. There's a Facebook page called Who Killed Teresa the Podcast. And as I mentioned, the website, TeresaLore.com. I will post the full text um, uh, from this article from Alo Police, as well as the photos of uh, um, uh, Diane and Mario. And um, a couple of clips of... Significantly, the La Presse article—it's um, a short blurb, but it, it, it documents when the case was transferred from Longueuil to Sarté to Quebec in November '79. So that's everything. It is raining horribly. Uh, enjoy your royal weekend, and uh, if, if, if you're, you know, into that kind of stuff, and have yourselves a great, great afternoon.